Welcome to the Broken Pie Chart Podcast, episode 209. I'm your host, Derek Moore, and with me once again, back for episode three, Sega Financials Director of Business Development, Mike Puck. Mike, how you doing today? Good, Derek. Thanks for having me back on. Yeah, so this is interesting. You and I were talking this week, and I said to you, why don't you just come on the podcast and we'll have this conversation like in public. And it's this idea, last time you were on, we were talking about value versus growth. But international is all of a sudden in favor. And I, I think it'd be interesting to have the conversation we were having off air, on air, and that's, you know, what will international ever outperform U.S. large cap or U.S. markets again? And Mike, I know you were just at the ETF conference in Miami. And wasn't everybody like talking about international? Yeah, that's right, Derek. So um, we've seen just a lot of press recently, especially on the advisor side. Um, and they talked about this a lot at the conference, uh, just around international flows, what that looks like. So David Kelly from JP Morgan uh, was one of the keynote speakers. He talked about it. Uh, you, there, you're just seeing a lot of research reports on it. And I think what really has happened is you just haven't seen a big run in international for quite some time, right? For, for over a decade. Um, and then all of a sudden, come January, we have all of these inflows into the international markets, into the international funds, ETFs, mutual funds, uh, SMAs. So uh, I, I looked into some numbers here and I found it pretty interesting I looked at flows for January. So international flows for January were $21 billion. It's $21 billion with inflows uh, into um, international funds. That's the ninth best month international funds have ever had in history. So that was really interesting. When it comes to local funds like regional, uh, maybe if you're thinking Brazil or India uh, or just a, you know like a South American fund, there was five billion of inflows. So also a really big month uh, for uh, regional, international. And to give you some perspective on that, is the U.S. inflows for January were seven point four billion. So uh, international was three times that. So I, we're seeing a lot of flows. There's been a lot of talk about it in the industry. Um, you're seeing a lot of economists talk about it. And it's just, it's been out of favor. And now all of a sudden you're seeing it really kind of start to do well and seeing all these inflows is interesting. I mean, you said out of favor, and I think you and I would both agree. It's, I feel like there's been a lot of fits and starts for international, meaning beginning of, I think in 2021, people said, no, this is the year for international make a comeback. And I, and I've heard this different times. But give us some perspective on, I know you looked at this data much like you looked at, at the value versus growth. Like how long has U.S. outperformed, uh, I guess, you know, the the EFA, right? E-A-F-A. So how bad is the, has the underperformance been? Like how long has it been since it actually outperformed U.S. large cap? Yeah, I, I think it's been quite some time. So, you know, when I was on a few episodes ago, we talked about value and growth and how the market moves in favor and you know, value can be in favor for a period of time and then growth can be in favor and they, they switch back and forth. Well, it's the same thing with international markets. And I, I think you and I were looking at something recently and it's been about 15 years uh, where the U S has really outperformed international EFA markets. So it's been, it's been a while. Um, and if you go back to like 
like the late nineties, that's when international actually had a really good run. So um, a lot of money managers were talking about international from like 99 to 2010, uh, because if you had a piece of international in your portfolio, you actually did okay. Um, you had better performance than just the S and P 500. So since then, I guess going into the you know the late 2000s, so 2008 9, right around the crash, that's when uh, U.S. really got out of favor. Um, or, or excuse me, the U.S. came back into favor, and it's been about 15 years since we've really seen international do well. Um, we'll see what happens. But again, there's been a little bit of a spike here. And I think we're off to a good start this year, at least for international. The audience can't see the chart, but I'll kind of just throw out some numbers here. Cumulatively, you mentioned 15 years. It looks like 225% cumulative better return US versus the international. Let's, I think this is developed and it's probably large and mid, mid in that index. And then, you, like you said, I mean, it's really probably 99, 2000, had a seven-year run, 64% cumulatively better. The crazy one, and I remember this, the late 80s, and it probably ends right at 89. That's the best internationals done versus U.S., and that was about 374%. I mean, but it, it's just, and what's interesting, too, is, you know, you look at this, and all right, so I, I remember, I'll tell you a quick story. I, I remember when I was first in markets, it was early 90s, I would say. And back then, uh, people were hunting for anything international. So there was this thing, telephonist to Mexico, telephonist to Chile, telephonist to anything people wanted to buy. It didn't matter. It was like telephonist to Argentina, and they were running. I remember uh, CMEX, which I think was a, a Mexican cement company. I, I think that's what it was. Like that thing ran. And I remember, I've told the story before, I'm in a, a TV uh, store, electronic store called The Wiz in New York. And back then, believe it or not, Mike, they actually had salespeople and they would try and sell you the TV. And you're like, trying, you're haggling over this TV. You're like, you know, I'll, I'll pay 200. Well, it's 300. Well, let, let's come down to 215. I don't know. My boss might fire me. But this guy had the Merrill Lynch Dragon Fund prospectus in his pocket. And I remember it had the, the I remember picture that of the, the boats in Hong Kong. Yeah, I mean, those things. And he was telling me, he's like, you know, he was going to be the next Warren Buffett. He was going all in into EM. And that back then, it was like 70% a year EM was getting. And then it didn't. And then it didn't. Um, Mike, I mean, I feel like this is the thing everyone says on CNBC at the start of the year. But it just hasn't worked, right? Yeah, it, it hasn't. So... A couple different angles on this. As first as going into the end of the year, people really didn't like international because they said, you know, the war is going on and uh, gas prices are going to go higher. Um, and, you know, that's going to hurt EFA markets, uh, specifically Europe, right, when it comes to, to gas and natural gas. Um, but that didn't happen. I, I think for a number of reasons, if you look at the, the winter, it was actually kind of a mild winter overall. Um, and that helped Europe more than people thought. Um, but that's really helped the international markets over the last three months. But I will say this, even though we've seen all these flows, there's been some slight cooling too uh, over the past month. Now, that could 
It doesn't mean that you know markets go up every single month if if uh, if we're in international favor or a value favor or any portion of the market is favored. Um, but it has cooled slightly. So I think uh, you're, you're, the, the flows are going in that direction, at least from an advisor standpoint. I, you know, to your whiz story, uh, you know, the story I always heard growing up in uh, finance was, you know, when your taxi driver right, gives you a stock tip, it's time to get out of the market, right? When they're, when they're giving you the hot tip of the week, you know, it's time to get out. In your case, it's the TV, TV sales guy. Uh, it's time to get in, out of international at that point. Um, I don't see the taxi drivers talking about this yet, right? Or the TV sales guys yet. This is seems to be more in the advisor world um, where we're seeing the, the conversations around international and what's going to happen. Um, also, EM. I mean, I think EM is an interesting story as well, right? Emerging markets. Uh, you know, let's let's look at the dollar here. So, right, we've seen the dollar peak in October um, and that is actually helping emerging markets. So those have been out of favor too for a little while, but that's giving some, um, a little push behind their emerging markets. And is that going to help international just in general, I think is a good question. And I think it will. You know, you, you look at, and by the way, as we're talking, I mean, our core thing that we do is we buy and we hedge or we have buffers and so, you know, we, we don't necessarily try and pick, okay, this is the year we're going to overweight to international. I mean, general, and generally, I mean, the, the large cap U.S. has outperformed for a long time. And if you look at the size of, so I guess that's my way of saying, you know, we, we don't know. I mean, it, it's, we, we buy and we hedge. But if you look at the size of markets, Mike, I think this is an interesting thing to bring up. I pulled up a chart, the relative size of world stock markets, the end of 1899. And why 1899? Because somebody was nice enough to put this chart up. This is from Elroy Dimson Marsh Stanton DMS database. Okay. Thank you for doing that work. I saw this on Twitter. So, and then you look at 2023. Back in 1899, the U.S., uh, let's say, percent of world stock markets. So, think about this as a market cap, meaning... How many shares do you have in the company times the price? That's your market cap. U.S. was only 15%. The U.K. was 24%. Germany was 13%. France was 11.2%. The U.S. today is 58.4%. Meaning if you were going to buy something like, you know, the FTSE, Russell, All World Index, U.S. is about 58.4%. U.K. goes down to 4.1%. Where's Germany? Germany's 21 and so the size of the market cap, it's, it's really U.S. centric. And you can kind of look too. I mean, a good proxy for this is iShares has a, uh, what do they call it? The Global 100 ETF. And it's basically, they just buy the 100 highest capitalized, uh, you know, by market cap companies in the world. And over a little over 70% are U.S.-based companies. So, I mean... It's sort of, I don't know. I mean, when you look at this, if you are saying on a on a material basis, you're going to go away from the S and P 500. You're essentially making a bet that the dollar is going to fall precipitously. You're also sort of making a bet, a size bet, and the size bet is you're probably coming down in market cap. And you know, you and I were talking a little bit, Mike. 
when you were on last time, uh, you had sent me that chart of growth versus value. I feel like uh, we got to do more work on this, but I feel like those two charts look a lot alike, don't they? Yeah, they do. And you know, your 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 listeners can't see the chart that we're looking at here, but it's really unbelievable, Derek. I mean, I'm I'm looking at this and how big the United States has gotten over the past what 122 years here on the chart. Right? It, it's a pretty regular diversified chart here, right? With the US and Germany and UK, Russia, um, you know, even South Africa's in here, right? It, it, Italy and then it just totally swings, and you can see over the past 120 uh, years, the U.S. is just really a monster compared to everybody else, and everyone's just a small little sliver compared to the U.S., which is almost 60 percent. So um, it, it definitely shows the U.S. has been favored, at least growth-wise, over the past 120 years. Uh, and when it comes to, uh, cycles or, um, kind of switching in, in where you see growth is the, the, we don't know, or at least we have to do a little more research on this, but, um, we don't know if the international market's going to be in favor of the next decade or so, or if it will be the U S. Uh, but based on this, it, it's hard to, it's hard to bet against the U S right. I've, I've seen how much growth that it's had, but it doesn't mean you sell your entire portfolio uh, and, and go all international, right? That would never be a recommendation from us or anybody, hopefully. Uh, but it just means, you know, if the U.S. market kind of stalls out or it's choppy or it's flat, maybe adding in a little bit of international to your portfolio could give you a little bit better performance over the next three to five years. So, uh, or in, uh, emerging markets, right? That was a hot one for a long time too, and then it, and and that's a lot more volatile, right? You get big swings in in, in internet, um, emerging markets, right? Where you're up twenty and then you're down twenty. I mean, that's that's a common year for uh, emerging markets. So, you know, I think international could go in favor here. We'll, we'll see. Uh, it certainly did very well during the the lost decade, right? That's what we talked about a little earlier, right? From two thousand to two thousand and ten. International did well, uh, but it's been it's been a dud for the past decade, right? From 2010 till now, it's really really lagged the U.S. and it's really hurt performance in portfolios. So we'll see what it looks like. But it's looking at this chart, it is hard to bet against the U.S. Yeah, Mike. I mean, it's. I think the other thing too is obviously technology has been and growth, as we've talked about in the past, has been the outperformer. And when you look at, let's say, U.S. large cap or the S&P, there's a lot of information technology in there. And so if growth is doing well, you would say, okay, well, the U.S. market's probably doing well because it has a lot of growth in there. You look at some foreign markets. And by the way, I, I, don't, I can't say I follow the, uh, the Spain's IBEX 35 index. I believe that's their, uh, their, their kind of version of their Dow or their S&P. But I looked at this and not including dividends, you go back to 1997, 1998, and you compare the price right now, it's essentially the same price. Now, it's gone down, it's gone up above there, it's oscillated, but excluding dividends, it's a you know, whatever you pay, if you bought the index and you can't buy an index, you know, just like you can't buy the S&P 500 index per se, you can use futures, you can use different things, but it's the same thing. And, you know, the, the thought about the value and growth got me thinking as well. And I said, well, if value does well when international does well, 
Maybe that's because, you know, just looking at the Spain index, and who knew I was going to talk this much about Spain's stock market today. But I mean, you look at the companies that make up that index, it's, you know, something like 25, 30% utilities, you have 30% financials. Information technology is only around four to five percent, I would say. And the S&P, I mean, Infotech is probably more like 15, 20%. I'd, I'd have to look that up. So you've got some, some more value-ish companies. And maybe that's one of the reasons too. I, you know, I, I think a trap that a lot of people go into is they say, well, look, look at the S&P's price to earnings ratio trailing. Look at the price to forward earnings right now, the forward PE. And then look at international and look how lower they are from a value standpoint. But if they're, they're more value-ish, well, value tends to have lower PEs. But in order for, you know, I mean, earnings can go up, the multiple can go up, multiple can go down. But like, I think that's part of it too. And maybe, maybe that's a little bit of the trap there too, the people, because I've heard this story before again and again. And look, we don't know what's going to happen. That's why we buy and hedge. I mean, we're not. Right. <laughs> but may, maybe that's part of the trap too, that it's, it's ah, this stuff is really cheap, isn't it? Right. Yeah. And, and you, you hear that term a lot, right? They talk about the value trap or the international trap. Um, and you reading some articles, you, there's a lot out there on, on why international could do well, but it certainly could be a trap. Right. Um, but you, you keep hearing about the dollar slowdown. Um, I, I think that's one of the big things, right? The dollar didn't have a strong, uh, year last year. So if that happens, and I think that goes to the economy, right? Is if the economy in the U.S. is getting slightly weaker, uh, all right, than expected, which we're we're seeing GDP, right? We're, we'll see what happens with GDP, and if we enter a recession, I think that's the 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 overall theme, right? Is people are still talking about a recession. If you look at the um, uh, some of the indexes uh, are talking to some of the CEOs about how they feel about the economy, you know, they're concerned about inflation and possible recessions. Uh, and those could give us a slightly weaker dollar, which pushes international up. Now, if that doesn't happen, or we hit a slight recession where we really don't get into a deep recession, which everyone's predicting a shallow recession if we have one, well, maybe the US dollar doesn't weaken too much. And then that's when you get stuck right in that international trap or that value trap when, hey, the US economy does great, but you shifted everything or a big portion to, to international and value, and those just continue to lag because the economy was a lot better than you thought. Yeah, I mean, let, let's. I, I want to talk about this this recession, no recession. We've been on that a little bit, I, but before we go there, let's talk about the dollar a little bit. I mean, the dollar. So, just in principle, when there is a weak dollar, so a weak dollar, what that means is these companies that are, let's say, priced in. In foreign dollars, they're they're worth more. I mean, their sales on a U.S. dollar to dollar basis are worth more. One of the challenges with uh, with a higher U.S. dollar, we see this more in the sovereign the sovereign debt markets as well. But let's say you have a company who goes to the capital markets and says, "Okay, we're uh, we need to borrow money, but instead of putting it in Malaysian rigots, I think that's the the Malaysian dollar uh, from memory." Instead of putting in Malaysian rigots, we're going to borrow in U.S. dollars. And I'd have to pull up the, the percent of international companies that borrow in U.S. dollars. But I know it does happen. And especially, you know, in emerging markets, you see that a little bit more too. 
And the reason why that is, is, is some, yeah, I mean, some bond investors say, okay, well, I don't really want to have currency risk. I just want to get paid in US dollars. And you can imagine if you have to convert your own currency when you're getting sales in your own country into US dollars and the dollar goes up, well, the cost of that debt just went up as well. So that's, that's something, you know, that, that is unique maybe to EM certainly. But the other thing that happens too, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, you, if you have a weak U.S. dollar, international tends to benefit from that. And I'm looking at a chart of the U.S. dollar, Mike, and it's, as you said, I mean, we crested, and and let me preface this too. I mean, there's there's the dollar index, the one you see on TV, that's really Eurocentric, meaning most of the stuff, the basket of things in there. Or either euro or eurocentric, meaning you have like I think Swedish kroners are in there. You have the euro, and you have some Japanese yen. There is a trade weighted U.S. dollar index, and what that is, that actually takes a look and says, based upon the flows of trade, I'm, I'm going to simplify this. Based upon the flows of trade, they have this this trade weighted broad dollar index, and you know I only have data back I think to to 06 or so. But we're higher still than any point going back to, I mean, yeah, I mean, we're still above the 2019. We're still above, uh, you know, 2015. And really, you know, you'd have to go back to, let's say, 2011 to see the lows in 2008. And Mike, you mentioned, you know, coming out of 2008, I think there was a little bit of international outperformance. But to me, like, this is a dollar story. And it's, and the dollar story also, that's a story for the U.S. large caps as well because their foreign sales go down when you have a strong dollar because everything's reported in U.S. currency. But I don't know, Mike. I mean, everyone seems to, to be that the dollar this year is going to go lower. Um, and I think when too many people say that, maybe to your point, it's not going to be the case, right? Right. The the, the trap happens, right? That's uh, that we keep using. So- yeah, uh, the dollar that everyone is talking about that, and we've had a very strong dollar uh, coming out of most recessions. I think if you look historically, um, the U.S. does the best, right? That the the term that people use around the globe is, you know, if the if the U.S. sneezes, the world catches a cold, right? So uh, you know, if we stumble a little bit, right, that's that could be bad for U.S. markets, but the rest of the world really feels it. Um, and, and when you lead out of these recessions or these real big down markets, you know, usually the U.S. leads us out. So I think that's what people are, are depending on. But now, um, if, at kind of at the end of that run, what can happen is as the U.S. kind of slows down a little bit and the rest of the world catches up, right, we might get a little bit of a weaker dollar. Um, and I think a lot of people are thinking that's going to happen over the next, let's say, 12 to 18 months, um, which, again, will help emerging markets that will help international companies. Um, and if you bring it here within the United States, like let's think about a, a company like McDonald's. Right. Well, McDonald's is a pretty large international company. It drives over 40 percent of its revenue. I'm not sure the exact number. I think it's close to 45 percent of its revenue from international markets, right? So if there's a weaker dollar, that will help their international business, right? So I think 
that that could be uh, something that does help value markets, and that maybe is why um, why value and international can move together at times. Um, so you know, between a, a weaker dollar in the U.S. or maybe some questions around a recession or just instability a little bit with the United States markets, brings the dollar down. We could see international do well. We can definitely see emerging markets do well in that type of environment. Mike, I'll also say you just made the case that if you own the U.S. market, you have international anyway. I mean, think about the international. I mean, these are global, global multinational companies now. And yeah, I mean, so it's it's kind of like, I mean, back in the day, I would say maybe it was more, okay, you own international. We're really focused on international markets. But I mean, look, Google is around the world. Apple's around the world. You know, I mean, McDonald's is around the world. So these are big companies with a good percentage of sales. And I think I saw about 30% of, of uh, the S&P sales are from international. So you sort of already have international in your portfolio. I don't know. Think again, if you only own U.S. companies, right? And you say, only, I, only invest, I only invest in U.S. companies. Well, okay, that, that's, I understand that. But Microsoft, Apple, Coca-Cola, IBM, right? All of these companies have huge international markets as well. So investing in the big, large U.S. companies definitely gives you some international exposure. All right, Mike, let's transition to the latest edition of, are we having a soft landing, hard landing, no landing? Are we having a recession? I saw this on Twitter. Michael Cantro, I believe his name is, from Piper Jaffrey. Or no, I said Piper Jaffrey. Piper Sandler, I believe, is the, the current name. And it's, it's this idea that he went back and he did, he must have done a Google search. And he said, okay, let me see prior to prior recessions. I think I can, I can, I use prior twice, but uh, I think I can say that. When, what was the, the narrative? What was the stories that were being seen? And it's kind of interesting. So he goes and right before, this is soft landing expected in 1973. Economists see a soft landing when boom ends. All right, well, then we had a recession. Soft landing expected in 1980. Uh, Economy should take medicine in 1980. Okay, we had a recession. You go to 1978, soft landing expected, 1978. Soft landing economy scene. Okay, that didn't happen. U.S. economy seems headed for a soft landing. That was 1989. Then we had the 1990 recession. Not a bad one. No one remembers that one. And yeah, I mean, then you go to 07. And yeah, I mean, there was the soft landing piece about Bernanke, how he sparkles in his first year as Fed chief. You go to 2000. Um, yeah, so I, I kind of did these out of order. Soft landing in sight for economy. Rate cut next? What, what, when was that? That was September 5th of 2000. Oh, wow. You may remember, and our audience may remember, you know, 2001, 2000, like it was a three-year bear market. So, all right. And Fed chairman finally projects soft landing for U.S. economy. And that was uh, 2007. Mike, I also, not in here, was also famous. I shouldn't say famously, but it is sort of famously for people who track this stuff. Janet Yellen, before she was Fed chair, she was the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Saint, uh, San Francisco, said, there's no problem in housing. She said that in 2007. Well, 
so I don't know. I mean, I, I love stuff like this and I'm a big fan of, of doing a, a Google search where you limit the, the dates, the, the date periods. So you can go into Google and say, Hey, from January 1st of 1978 to January, you know, December 31st of 1978, show me this stuff. And you can find newspaper articles on this, but I just love this, Mike. And I, I, it's really good perspective. Number one is nobody knows anything. And number two is like, it's, uh, you know, I mean, I don't know. What do you take from this? What do you, what do you, when I show you this and I think this is brilliant, the guy did this. Well, it's interesting that people say soft landing throughout history, right? And, and I guess sometimes there's been soft landings and other times not so much. And then you, the big ones, people aren't even expecting, right? I mean, it seems, um, you know, 2008, COVID, things like that. Uh, and, and that shows what happens market-wise too, right? Because the market really hates uncertainty. I think that's that's the big thing that the market hates. So if 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 you just get blindsided, like a COVID's a great example of that. Yeah, you have major market volatility in a downswing. I think right now that's not the case, right? Everyone is thinking recession, and and here's a, a study that was done. Let's see, it's done by a non for profit um, called the Conference Board, and what they do is they go around and they ask the the top minded CEOs in the world. Uh, what do they think? What's keeping them up at night? That's the main question, right? Keeping them up at night, um, including risks, opportunities, strategies, growth. And um, the three things that the CEOs said were economic recession, inflation, and a labor shortage. So 98%, according to this survey, 98% of global CEOs said they think that there'll be a recession in 2023. But also, they said that the recession will be short and shallow. So I think that's the consensus across the board. Um, returning to uh, growth in late 2023, early 2024. So the uncertainty factor is not here right now that you would get from a 2008 or you might get from a COVID-type scenario. Um, everyone's anticipating it. They're thinking about recession. The really kind of weird thing about this one specifically is that they're thinking about a labor shortage. So that doesn't typically come up when you think recession. When you think recession, you think of layoffs and uh, people are going to lose their jobs and you're going to be looking for jobs or cut to part time. But right now, people are saying there'll be a labor shortage showing that these companies are kind of shifting their thinking. We need more people to work. Um, so I think that's why they're anticipating a short and shallow uh, recession. And I just I think that's the consensus. Everybody thinks we're going to have a recession. It's not going to be a huge one. Um, and I think the positive takeaway from that is that we're not experiencing uh, uncertainty, major, major uncertainties, unless there's something we're missing. Right. Which we always could be. But the uncertainty about a recession is kind of out of the, the picture here. Uh, and everyone's preparing for it. I'm sort of smiling as you're saying, you know, what, what the consensus view is. And that tells me, and again, I'm, I'm being sarcastic here. It's like, okay, then we're going to have no recession and a ton of growth. Or we're going to have a really bad recession because everyone's saying it's going to be a recession and it's going to be short and shallow. Something else is going to happen. Like the <laughs> consensus is never right. So, right. Uh, by the way, Google trends. So uh, I saw this chart as well. Uh, let's see, Carl Cantania from CNBC. Squawk Box uh, had this out on Twitter. 
Google Trends, interest over time, search terms, soft landing. It seems like a lot of people are searching for soft landing right now, like more than they have over the past. I don't know how when this goes back. Uh, this goes back all the way to 2008, 2009. So highest search volume since then. Um, That's funny. By the, <laughs> right. Yeah. By the, look at that. I want, you know, it's tough to see the scale. I wonder if people are searching for soft landing at the end of 2008 or at the beginning of 2009? Because may, maybe this is a contrarian indicator. Maybe it's not. I can't see the scale. But yeah, I mean, no landing. Watch the no landing thing. That's, that's the latest one. No landing is we're going to have growth, but we're going to have higher inflation still and higher rates for longer. But I don't know, Mike. Uh, as I always say, I'll let you know when it happens, right? Right. Yeah. And, and one of the things you just said I, I think is good is, right, is it? The exact consensus never turns out the way, you know, it, everybody thinks, right? So if we all we all think we're going right and nobody thinks we're going left. Well, it turns out we end up going left. It seems to happen quite frequently. Absolutely. And it, it, the same goes through to rates too. And I've heard a lot of discussion on what's the shape of the yield curve, where the Fed funds rate is going and these things. And, and, and a great chart, this is, uh, this is Jesse Felder on Twitter at had posted this, and it's the 10-year yield versus nominal GDP growth rate. And it's it's a good reminder, and I was I was having this conversation with somebody the other day. I said, you know, if, if you want to know where the 10-year yield is going to be, tell me what the, you know, the nominal, so not, not the one you see on TV, because real GDP is what gets reported. But including inflation, not adjusted for inflation, basically the nominal GDP growth rate is typically right around where the 10-year treasury yield is going to be. And, uh, you know, the 10-year treasury is a little bit below four. I think the nominal GDP growth was, was something north of seven. So the question is, did nominal GDP growth have to come down or does the 10-year have to come up? And that's another one. I'll let you know when, when right. I know, right? We'll tell you when it happens. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think also everyone... Everyone's been wrong so far, including the Fed, on both inflation and rates. And what I mean by on rates is a lot of people a year or two ago were saying, well, the Fed, they, no way they can raise above 3%. That's, that's the cap. No way they can raise above 4 No way they can raise above 5 And now the consensus, or at least the probabilities based upon the Fed fund futures, is getting more like five and a quarter, 5.3, maybe 5.5. Um, you know, we'll see what happens there, but yeah. All right. Let me, let me go to this, Mike. And I follow, so John Hussman always puts out these really long detailed pieces on valuations and I'll, I'll put a link to his latest piece in the show notes. If, if you're, if you want to geek out on like valuation stuff, it's, uh, like his, his pieces are very dense and he added, I think he added these some geek notes where he talks about the math, but it's, he put out a chart recently and his point was on price to sales. And basically when you, when you have a price to sales, unlike price to earnings, it's the S and P's price divided by its revenue or its sales. And most recently it was 2.42%. And that's still above the, the 2000, the year 2000 peak of 2.3. And then our audience can't see this chart, but I'll fill them in. We were above three times price to sales at the beginning of 2022, end of 21. 
And I think the long run average is more, it depends how long you go, but let's say, you know, one and a half or something like this. So according to, you know, the husband data here, the S&P is still overvalued on a price to sales basis. I mean, this is pretty stark when you look at this, right? Yeah, it is, right? And there's been there a lot of charts that I've seen over the years that always say, hey, the S&P's overpriced um, or overvalued. Uh, but this does, this, this looking at this data, um, you know, price to sales, it, it shows that things are still priced high, right? So um, I, I think this is one of the reasons that you're seeing some people be uh, cautious when they are looking at the market right now, uh, or they're buying dividend stocks right now, right? And again, not a recommendation from us necessarily, but you're seeing people say, hey, I still think things could be expensive. I'm not sure what's going to happen. So let me lean on the side of caution. So um, the market could be high. I think we've started this year off a little choppy, right? We had a good January, but February has come down a little bit. And it's just creating a little uncertainty here. uh, And people might feel like things are a little rich still. I'll give you the, some more data too. I mean, part part of the reason why price to sales has been elevated is because margins have expanded. You know, two thousand nine margins, uh, you know, earnings divided by your revenue is your your net profit margin. So, if your revenue is a thousand and you earn sixty bucks, well, you're earning six percent. Kind of the, the just to simplify that. So you look at the earning, you know, the margins, uh, 2009, 6.7, 2010, just under nine. And you have 11, 12, 13, anywhere between 9.3, 9.8. In 2021, I mean, margins went to 13.3%. 2020, 10.3. 19, 11.5. 18, 12.1. And the expectation for 2023 is about 12.3% based upon the analyst expectation of earnings and revenues. And Hussman points out, I mean, revenues typically over time, uh, his number is grow about 3.8%. So I bring this up and, you know, you could say that, okay, well, you can support a higher price to sales because margins are better. And really the question is, and I have no idea, uh, if margins compress, okay, well then, yeah, I mean the market is is not going to support those valuations. If margins expand, that's that's better. So, I don't know. I mean, to me, it's do margins come down to a long run average or to our original discussion is the S and P five hundred very infotech heavy, and some of the biggest companies have really good margins and maintain margins that are big, and you know they're not. It's not like the old days where they're building a bunch of smokestacks and factories and stuff, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, the, the big companies too, especially the, the, the large U S companies, right. And everybody talked about, well, if interest rates go up, uh, that's going to hurt margins and it's going to hurt, uh, borrowing of the big companies, right. You heard that all the time. The borrowing part was, was, well, they're going to have to borrow. Well, well, look at the cash on hand for these companies or look at the margins that they're they're making from from profits, right? Is they're 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 really really well capitalized, right? And you know, if you're thinking that Apple has to go out and borrow a bunch of money, they they don't, right? They're still making plenty of money. Their their margins still look good. They could borrow from themselves, and they did um, 
they did actually issue quite a few bonds when when interest rates were very low too, right? They they, they made some smart decisions there. So I, some things could be overvalued here. I, I think that's always the case with the market, right? Certain portions of the market are always a little overvalued. And I think that's what this tells us is, is maybe there's some areas of the market that are slightly overvalued. So we'll have to see what happens. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of John Hussman's data and his stuff. And, and he even makes the point, I mean, look, markets... There could be over speculation, under speculation, and his stuff is his stuff is really interesting. So I'll put a link to it. All I'll say too on this is, you know, the, the part of uh, people a lot of times ask you and 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 me as well, hey, you know, do you think the market's overvalued, undervalued? What do you think? And, and I say I don't pick markets. That's why we buy and we hedge. And so in, implicit in having hedges in markets is we don't know what levels of speculation. We don't know what people necessarily will be willing to pay on a multiple basis. You sort of buy and you hedge. And if markets really fall apart, you've got a floor in the portfolio. And then inherently, you know, the idea with hedging is you either make money from the hedging or you avoid loss, and then you reinvest the avoided loss or or hedging profits at lower levels. It's sort of the the foundational thing that we do. And, And I always bring that up because it, it almost sounds like, okay, are you guys saying it's over? I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I'll let you know when it happens, but we'll see. Mike, any, uh, well, we haven't made necessarily any recommendations up to this point. Any recommendations that uh, that you have for, for the listeners this week? So I do, yes. If if you're in Florida, now I live in Miami, Florida, so this, is, this may be only uh, consolidated to you, uh, to our Florida listeners. But Cool Air USA, I, I, I needed a new air conditioner. Really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm going to make it regional. I think they're a pretty big company, but I, I needed a new air conditioning um, this this weekend. Actually, we got home. I was traveling uh, for work, and uh, I got home kind of late on Saturday night, and uh, our air conditioning was out. So luckily in Florida, it wasn't too bad, right? If this was summertime, we would have been toast. But uh, it wasn't too bad, and, and Cool Air USA is my recommendation. I feel like they gave me a fair price. They got out here really quickly and gave me a new AC. So, so cool. If you're in Florida, they're a great company. <laughs> I can't believe you gave a regional recommendation to a worldwide audience. People in Belgium right now are like, "Come on, already." Uh, maybe they'll. You know, I've never taken sponsors for this program, by the way, but I feel like I should send <laughs> Cool Air in Florida a bill for the uh, right. recommendation. You'll have to send this to them, too. They, they can post, you know, like in, in the pizza shop where they yes. as mentioned in the New York Times. Right. That's they, absolutely they can, right. They, <laughs> and hey, the international <laughs> audience, a lot of people have homes in Miami. So maybe, you know, you never know if they may have a, a you know, a summer spot or a winter spot in Miami. So who knows? Maybe you heard of them. <laughs> I got to tell you, though, I our air con- so our home was built in 1999, which for a lot of the worldwide audience might say, well, that's a really new home. For Arizona, it's, you know, it, it's 20 plus years now. Right. There's a lot of building that's happened. And so we still have the original air conditioning units. And we have, it's, so we have, we have an AC, anyway, an air, I won't go into AC stuff. That's, we'll lose half the audience, uh, the remaining half that haven't left already. But it's, I couldn't believe the price. So we got an estimate just to kind of see. We don't have any problems yet, but you know, 20, 20 plus years for these units in Arizona is a little long in the tooth. And I don't know. I mean, I'm like, really? I know we've had inflation, but this is crazy. Like they've gone up. 
a ton since the last time I had to replace one in an old house. So yeah, I'll tell you, it's I, I think inflation's here. This is a sign of of inflation, absolutely right. Is ACs going up? Uh, it, all sorts of things going up. I think we all feel it. The other part too is um, we're. I'll just make the quick point. I mean, this is the thing that everyone always forgets. When you have inflation, it never goes down. You don't have, I mean, the, the biggest periods of disinflation is like, you know, on an annual basis, maybe you have some years that are down 1%, 2%, but most times prices are going up. It's just, they're not going up as much. And so the problem for this inflation is, the costs that have gone up, they're not going down. They're not. Not without, I mean, if we have a recession and people have to discount things, sure. But in general, prices don't go down. All right. I, um, I'll give a pre-recommendation because I just know it's going to be good. And that's uh, Succession. Uh, I'm a little early on this, but I bring this up. Succession's coming back to HBO March 26th. It's season four. I think they've said it's the final season. If you haven't watched Succession before, go ahead and binge watch on HBO the first three seasons. It's, it's one of the best shows I think that's ever been made. So it's it's tremendous. Have you watched that, Mike, Succession? Yeah, I've only been through season one, but it's definitely a good show. So I will. I need to get caught up, and maybe it's something I can do this weekend. Um, but I, I season one was great, and I... I I support your recommendation. It is a great show, and uh, if you haven't watched it, it's definitely worth the watch. Absolutely. And then a quick one, Drive to Survive on Netflix season four comes out, I think today, when we're recording this, recording this on Friday the 24th, when people uh, listen to this, it'll be probably Sunday. But yeah, season four came out. And even if you don't watch uh, Formula One racing, it's it was really good. And I think it, Formula One has gotten a lot of fans from it. So anyway, great show or drop. Yeah, great show. I, like, oh, you watched the one? Yeah. yeah, I have. I've seen all three seasons. Great, phenomenal show. It's fun to watch. Uh, even if you're not into Formula One racing, you'll get into it, right? You actually get into the racing a little bit. And at least I know some of the drivers now. And I kind of, when they're coming to, to um, the U.S., I'll kind of watch some of the races at least a little bit. So it's it's neat. It's a great show. I'm glad they made it. You got to go to the the Miami. Isn't Miami one in May? Yeah, so they just started. Yeah, it was they did kind of like an expo a couple of years ago, which I went to in person. Um, and then this year uh, or last year, I, I was out of town. Uh, but I'm going to try to go to the May one this year. So it's it's should be pretty exciting. Do they have a? Is it a? a do they actually have a, a track there, or do they got to do it? have to do it on the street. So they build it around the Dolphins stadium. So they, it, the seating and everything is all set up around the, the stadium. And then they set up the track around that. Okay. So you got to go. I got to go. I mean, if it's in your backyard, you might as well go. Right. I mean, I'm definitely going this year. That's it's a tough ticket to get. I think that that has the most celebrities per, uh, per event than any event I imagine. So I think so. Uh, yeah. All right, Mike. Well, Mike, thanks for coming on again. I think this is, uh, look, we're going to keep hearing these debates, international value versus growth, international versus U.S. and, and the inflation. But uh, I, look, I'll, we'll let people know when it happens. Just stay hedged. Buy, you know, you want to be in the markets, but be hedged. So, Mike, thanks again for coming on. Thanks for having me, Derek. All right, everyone. We'll talk to you next week.